Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24. I am Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, a former Syrian colonel is sentenced to life in prison by a German court. We'll have an interview with a campaigner who feels justice has finally been done. I'm so happy to be able, among other Syrian survivors, to use our trauma as a weapon, our past as a weapon against our enemies and to bring them to justice. Plus, we talk into a vegan recipe by one of Bali's top culinary talents. We found during our research and development that our vegetable boshi is just absolutely incredible, really rich in flavor, really smoky. And I'm actually using that vegetable boshi within quite a few of my dishes on the menu. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippi. We begin with a look back to last Sunday's edition of Meet the Writers. The show's host, Georgina Godwin, met Ian Hislop, the editor of Britain's most successful and indeed only fortnightly satirical magazine. He has been at the helm of Private Eye for 32 years, leading its investigative journalism, spoofs and, of course, iconic covers. Here is part of their conversation. Tell us about beginning at Private Eye 32 years ago. Oh God, 32 years ago. Yes, I, I ran a student newspaper, which was called Passing Wind. <laughs> very, very subtle uh, form of humour. And very difficult to get adverts, I found. <laughs> I'd go into clothes shops on the high street and say, would you like to advertise in this magazine? They'd say no. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, and, and in that I used to interview essentially my heroes. And I interviewed Peter Cook, who was the owner of Private Eye. Uh, he owned 80% of the shares. And he basically bailed Private Eye out in the 60s. He just bought up all its debts. And so he owned the magazine. And I interviewed Peter. And it was, obviously, as, as a 20-year-old, it was one of the great experiences of my life. And um, uh, we had lunch. And because it was Peter Cook, it didn't involve any food. Um, <laughs> and because I was 20, I thought, I can keep up with Peter Cook, you know. A couple of double martinis, maybe five, or, or... Anyway, I just completely legless. And my tape recorder didn't work. So I had no notes. And so I confessed this to Peter, and he was so impressed by my professionalism... <laughs> <laughs> ..that he recommended me to the editor, um, Richard Ingrams, and said, you should write to him. So I wrote to him, and I started sending jokes just before my finals. And I got a... <laughs> I got a, a joke in during the dirty protest of the IRA. Do you remember the joke? Yes, it was a Sanderson advert. I, I did it as a decor. I said, you know, the colours were sort of beige and taupe and very Sanderson. It was very bad taste. Um, <laughs> and I think on that level, Richard decided he should perhaps give me a job, which he did just after I left college. And then I, I sort of hung around trying to put in jokes, trying to write things, trying to write stories. And eventually, uh, Richard Ingrams, the great first editor, um, he had enough of running the magazine, and he retired. And much to the irritation of everyone else, he gave me the job. <laughs> and I was 26. And, uh, and I'm now 96. 
I mean, at this point, if you'd like yes. to lie on the, on the couch, that would be okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll go here. Yeah. Were these men father figures to you? Yes. I mean, I lost my father, I was 12, when he died, and it's become clear through the rest of my life that I was incredibly lucky. There was a group of, of Peter Cook, Richard Ingrams, Christopher Booker, the great journalist, Barry Fantoni, the cartoonist and jasmine and they ran wrote and produced the eye and i think they found the idea of me coming in incredibly funny <laughs> they were not at all threatened and they were very good to me and i learned a huge amount and my problem was that the uh, people of about 50 were absolutely furious um, and they thought what on earth is this ridiculous boy doing running the magazine you know and now i'm their age i think quite right these these young people, you can't give them a job. But actually, I think Richard was right. And I, I was very lucky, and I, I was greatly helped. And Peter Cook was just marvellous. You know, I kept getting into trouble legally. And Peter, as proprietor, thought it was wonderful. So I would say, I'm terribly sorry, Peter. I've lost an absolute shed load of money, and um, we're more or less stuffed on all these cases. And he'd go, great. And he used to come to court. That was Peter's great thing. And he'd take me out to lunch. Features quite a lot in my life, lunch. And then we'd go back into court and there was... I mean, my overriding memory of Peter is doing a, a libel action against Robert Maxwell, who some of you may remember. Um, very distinguished businessman. <laughs> and terrific crook. God. Uh, anyway, he sued repeatedly the whole time I was editor. And when he was giving evidence in the dock, Peter sat in the front row of the court and waved his checkbook at him. Fantastic. Didn't really put the judge on our side. <laughs> <laughs> so if you had to describe your job, a day yes. in your job, what, what is it that you actually do apart from go to lunch? Well, that's quite a significant <laughs> part of the day. What do I do? I... I commission pieces, I write pieces, I get together the joke people, I choose the cartoons. I mean, it's an incredible privilege, really, to have a load of stuff sent in and to choose what you like. And then I deal with the consequences. So, obviously, there are, there are problems. Um, legal problems do take up quite a lot of my time over the years. And um, people say, well, you must be a bit of a legal expert by now. And I go, well, I've fought 40 cases and one one, <laughs> which is pretty expert. And that one, the other side went bankrupt, so we didn't get any of the costs, so that was a sort of a pyrrhic victory. <laughs> should, we, should we look at some of those cases now, actually? I mean, look, but how about Maxwell? Yes. Well, Robert Maxwell, my predecessor, Richard Ingrams, had written a great deal, and when he handed over the job to me as editor, he handed over what he said, I'm terribly sorry, there are a number of unexploded bombs which were all writs from Maxwell. And Maxwell sued me right the way through up until his death. He sued me, first of all, over a suggestion he was trying to buy a peerage, uh, which he was. It's all right, he's dead. And I ended up uh, having to pay an enormous amount of money to Maxwell. And I was so cross, I went on News at 10, and I said, I've paid out a fat cheque to a fat cheque. <laughs> 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 Which actually, it was £250,000, which is quite an expensive joke. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, in most jobs, I realised I would have been fired 
you know, for losing a quarter of a million pounds. But at Private Eye, this was taken as a terrific feather in my cap. <laughs> Why? Why? And, it, and he, he carried on suing. He carried on suing right up until he died. Why? I mean, what, what was the threat? He you? hated being criticised and he hated people telling the truth about him. And in the last writ we got from him, we'd suggested that Maxwell was stealing from his own pension fund. Can you believe it? <laughs> and, you know, fortunately, he, he, he did die. That sounds callous, doesn't it? Um, he fell off the boat. And then, but we would have lost. We would have lost the writ because it was incredibly complex to prove and everyone, the entire sort of financial legal establishment, were defending him. And then shortly after he died, everyone said, oh, that Robert Maxwell. Yes, we, we never liked him. He was a terrific crook. Having taken his money and worked from all through, which is a repeated story. And you'll see it in the book. There's, there's usually a businessman per decade who's, who is that figure who everyone then says afterwards, I just can't believe it. You know, it was Goldsmith, it was um, Lord Wilson's cronies earlier in the 70s. You know, there's, there's a number of oligarchs now, many of them donors to the Conservative Party. I just say that for balance. <laughs> I mean, they do give to other... Oh, no, they don't. No, 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 they don't. So uh, part of the job of the eye is just to, to do that emperor's clothes thing and say that is what's happening. You know, I mean, and again, I mean, so very recently, I mean, we've done a lot of, of you know, donors and um, Russian money laundering and Britain becoming this giant sort of washing machine full of filth <laughs> goes around. And people say, God, that's extraordinary. And I said, well, don't you think it's a bit odd that the, the party in power is largely financed by people who don't have our interests at heart? And people go, oh, yeah. That seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Which I think it is, but we've just got inured to it. So part of our job is just to go, look. Ian Hislop, the editor of Private Eye, speaking to Monocle's Georgina Godwin for last weekend's episode of Meet the Writers. One story Private Eye has covered is the merry-go-round of passes held in lockdown by the British government. And Friday saw fresh calls for UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson to resign after it was revealed that two other parties took place at Numberton Downing Street on the eve of the Duke of Edinburgh's socially distanced funeral. For Friday's edition of The Briefing, Monocle Tom Edwards was joined by the journalist and broadcaster Nadine Batchelor-Hunt, who began by explaining the backdrop of the latest allegations and some of the restrictions the Queen herself faced during that time. Well, it seems to have emerged that the Prime Minister's former Director of Communications, James Black, had some sort of a leaving due on the evening before the Queen buried her husband, Prince Philip, um, which kind of now has become a personally iconic photo of her sitting alone in the church and in many ways, for many Brits, seem to embody the loneliness of the pandemic and how, you know, you couldn't even mourn your loved ones. So particularly, already the parties were an emotive topic for millions and millions of Brits, um, many of which didn't get to see their family members in their last hours or didn't get to bury them as they needed to, as, as, as you would expect in, you know, in, in normal times. But also, you know, the Queen holds a very special place in the British psyche. And for, you know, many, many Brits seeing this is going to feel unpatriotic it's going to feel like the ultimate betrayal. Um, you know, the, the UK overwhelmingly, you know, when you look at polls, supports the Queen. So, yeah, this is a very sticky situation for a number 10. And I think what's been quite striking is that 
Number 10 came out this morning and said it was just a, it was a farewell speech. Now, as somebody who's been working in the lobby on this over the last few weeks, they have repeatedly refused to confirm or deny allegations of parties, insisting that it's that because they don't want to preempt the inquiry that's going to come next. Surprise, surprise, though, this morning, clearly, as, as a symbol of how the gravitas of, of these new accusations are, they've immediately come out and said, you know, it, it was just a farewell um, speech. So it gives you a sense of the kind of nervousness that's going on in Number 10 right now, that they felt the need to come out and say this almost immediately when they've been stonewalling jam this on this for weeks. It's months. I think we're getting to months now. Yeah, Nadine, exactly. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that sense of growing uh, pressure. Obviously, there was this extraordinary uh, PMQs on uh, Wednesday lunchtime uh, when you could sort of hear a pin drop in the House. And interestingly, we're seeing the, the tension, the pressure on number 10, and very specifically on Boris and his inner circle ratcheting up, you know, in the pages of the Telegraph uh, across all of the British uh, newspapers. And it doesn't now seem to be partisan at all. Uh, There seems to be this collective uh, sense of, of injustice. And it's being articulated by people with their own personal stories, heartbreaking ones, as you say, of not being able to say goodbye to loved ones. And now, you know, the Queen, the figurehead, the icon, a person that even the Telegraph's most committed readers love even more than they used to love Boris. Um, is the pressure rising, though, to an unsustainable, uh, an unsurvivable degree for Boris? What are you, what are you feeling uh, in the corridors of power where you are right now? So it's interesting, you know, if you, there's, there's kind of a sense, I think, within Labour that, you know, this is, maybe this is the end, that maybe this is going to be the moment now that um, he's going to go. And I, I think, you know, and so there are some people within Labour that think it's just a matter of time. I think there are some people in the, in the Conservative Party, which has been the sense that they think it's just going to be a matter of time. But then there are other people that think, you know, he's not really going to go anywhere. So I think, you know, I think for the public in many ways, they maybe are more likely to think he'll resign than not. But I think within Westminster, he's a very, very, um, I don't know, people call him the Teflon Tory, don't they? He, he manages to survive things that people within the political universe don't think he will survive over and over again. You know, be it misleading the Queen, you know, this isn't the first time that there's been a bit of a, uh, a kind of story around him and, and not necessarily a positive one when it comes to the Queen, you know, misleading her and unlawfully proroguing Parliament back a few years ago and now this. But he always seems to survive. You know, I mean, how many times have we been here saying, is this the end for Boris Johnson? Is he going to resign? So I personally don't think we, we can expect to see his, his resignation. I, I may eat my words, but, you know, his number 10 have been quite persistent in their um, in their line that they're not going to make any statement and there won't be any sort of resignation until Sue Gray's report um, is released. And I think for me, that is a point that maybe we will see it. Um, but I, I just can't see him resigning really um, unless he thinks he's going to lose a no confidence vote at the 1922 committee, um, which would mean 40, 54 MPs in the Conservative Party would need to submit letters of no confidence, which would then trigger a leadership which would then trigger a confidence vote. If he thought he was going to lose that, then I think we'd see him resign. But I can't see, you know, more than 150 MPs voting him down in a no confidence vote. So I personally think he's here to stay. But I think Westminster's quite split at the moment, which is a sign maybe of the times that the tide might be shifting.
Yeah, hugely uncertain. And I was going to ask you a little bit about what we should look for next. I know sometimes it's wrong to try and read the tea leaves, if you like, Nadine, and look for, you know, meaning in other things. Are there imminent, I don't know, other pronouncements, appearances? You know, it's always been very striking. It was striking even on Wednesday, wasn't it, that Rishi Sunak, for example, was like (laughs) down in the West Country and didn't say anything other than a pretty guarded, he was right to apologise. Interesting to read that. If you don't think that you know, any pronouncements imminently from the 1922 committee uh, are, are, are to be forthcoming. And clearly, we don't know when Sue Gray will, will report, do we yet? I don't think. So any other things we should look for? Any runes we can can read into? I think keep an eye out for reports of letters going into the 1922 committee. I think that's quite a significant one. Um, that, that they're sent anonymous. They're not sent anonymously, but um, the chair for Graham Brady will not disclose how many has been sent into him. Once the threshold is met and uh, no confidence vote is triggered, the more people will see reports of these letters being sent in, means more MPs are being more outspoken about their dissatisfaction. Then, you know, some of them will openly say, "I have sent no confidence letter in," like Douglas Ross. Uh, Douglas Ross. But then other MPs will just say, you know, say to the Times off the record or, or, or something like that and say, you know, I've sent a low confidence um, uh, letter in, but I'm not going to be named. So keep an eye out for those sort of reports. I think that they're, they're probably the best um, best judgment. And also keep an eye out on who is speaking out against Boris Johnson. At the moment, we've had a lot of backbenchers that you'd expect, like Sir Roger Gale, who has never been a fan of Boris Johnson and I think sent in a low confidence letter uh, quite a while ago now. Um, so I think keep an eye on new MPs that are backbenchers, but perhaps not as backbenchy as others that are coming out now and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy with him. Like, I think Caroline Noakes, for example, I think on, on, on Wednesday, um, she was quite, she was on test and saying, I, I think he needs to go. So I think they're the kind of things to watch out for, because without his kind of, you know, his front bench alone are not going to be able to stop him losing a leadership. Uh, well, I, I don't have no confidence. So I would keep an eye on the kind of the conservatives in the middle of the, the house that aren't from benches, but you wouldn't expect to speak out unless there was something serious happening. I think that's probably the, where, where the best place to keep, um, keep people's eyes on at the moment. The journalist and broadcaster Nadine Batchelor-Hunt speaking to Monocle Storm Edwards on Friday's edition of The Briefing. Staying in the world of politics now, the Austrian city of Graz has a new mayor and it's a double first, a woman and a communist. Amid the chaos of the country's national politics, Elke Kahr seems calm and collected. But more importantly, her policies and her ideas have been well received. She's already shelved the expensive prestige projects of the previous administration and reorganised the city's finances, freeing up money for welfare services, social housing and climate protection. So could communism be the answer to Austria's problems? Monaco's Alexei Korolev sent us this report. If we, unless we, make sure that there is no infiltration of our government, then just as certain as you sit there, you will see a red world. This portrayal of communism as dark, evil and malign was commonplace in 20th century Western culture. And even though those fears were massively exaggerated, Russian communism was evil. Its vision of a new and better society in Russia and elsewhere failed, and failed spectacularly. Because far from bringing freedom and prosperity to the people, it degenerated into dictatorship. 
Here in Central Europe, the word communism has long since fallen out of use. For some, it's a reminder of a painful past. For others, a convenient bogeyman. My name is Elke K. Uh, since a short time, I'm the mayor uh, from our city, Graz. So when, a few months ago, Elke K. was elected mayor of Graz, Austria's second biggest city, it sent shockwaves across the country. Because Elke Kahn is a communist, and she was as surprised as anyone. I was very surprised, uh, and that was unglaublich is. But this große Vertrauen, that the Bevölkerung in unserer Stadt uns gibt, das ist etwas, was schon seit Jahrzehnten. But now, as her mayorship begins in earnest, she has her hands full. And my job is the same than 30 years before. I try to stand by the people every day. Mm. And that's, for me, the, the important job. She means this literally. Elke Kahr is remarkably approachable. Anyone can come and see her about their grievances. But her main concerns are rising inequality, rising rents and rising energy bills. She's even promised to give two-thirds of her salary away to those in need. Communism has a long history in Austria. The Communist Party of Austria is one of the oldest in the world, founded in 1918, and it was the only party that survived Nazi dictatorship, and we take some pride in that uh, fact that we are the only party that uh, couldn't be brought down <laughs> by the National Socialists. Georg Fuchs is one of LKK's closest aides, and himself a long-time member of the Austrian Communist Party, or KPÖ. I joined in 1986 when I was 14, and uh, I'm active ever since, I've been active ever since. The communists have always been strong in Graz, and so, he says, their ascendancy is logical. It was a bit like new hope to get a better administration. Mm -hmm. The old one had the reputation of uh, making policies for rich people for investment and also for having a negative impact on the natural environment for things like uh, applying for Olympic Games which wouldn't be affordable f yeah. <laughs> and things like that so it's it, the Olympic Games yes in Graz yes but uh, I think the foremost reason why uh, people vote, voted for KPÖ is is just Elke and, and her uh, She's very approachable. She really stands out with, with this approach. Elke Kahr has comrades in arms across Europe. The communist mayor of Grigny in France was even voted the world's best mayor by the World Mayor Foundation last year. But Graz is by far the largest city on the continent to be run by communists. I know this, but uh, it is not so important. In the history, maybe. <laughs> but... Uh, Ich bin keine große Freundin von Symboliken. She's no friend of symbolism, she says. Her motto is, make the people around you happier, here and now, and the rest will follow. Will it? For Monocle in Graz, I'm Alexei Korodov. Monocle's Alexei Korolyov there. 
From Austria, we hop across the border to Germany next where this week a court sentenced a former Syrian colonel to life in prison after being found guilty of crimes against humanity. Anwar Raslan was linked to the torture of more than 4,000 people in Syria's civil war and the violent crackdown on 2011 protests in a jail known as Hell on Earth. The trial is the world's first criminal case over state-sponsored torture in Syria. One Syrian awaiting Thursday's court decision was activist Omar al-Shoghri. From the age of 15, he was arrested and imprisoned multiple times for participating in rallies and demonstrations against the Assad regime, finally fleeing to Sweden at the age of 22. He joined Monaco's Paige Reynolds from Stockholm, first explaining how he felt after hearing the historic news. Firstly, I could not sleep waiting for this. I had for so long time been waiting to hear this verdict, to hear this symbolic value that we need to renew our hope as Syrian people, and especially as a a former detainee, that was a symbolic value and evidence that the trauma that we went through has been the reason we could drive to rebuild the things that we never thought we could accomplish before. I'm so happy to be able among other Syrian survivors to use our trauma as a weapon, our past as a weapon uh, against our enemies and to bring them to justice. I guess what you're saying there is that there's so much symbolism with this court ruling. Does it make you feel more hopeful that justice, albeit maybe quite a slow process, might be delivered for, for many of those like yourself who have suffered? This may not, you know, repair the the broken heart for a mom who lost her kid in prison, it may not repair uh, the wounds or the scars of the prisoner of myself, but this actually can renew our hope because it's the first time and it's a very unique kind of trial that happened. It's historical, it's the first of its kind, and it's about Syria. It's about the ones who've been responsible for our pain, for our suffering. So for me, this is the start that will move the dictator in Syria from the seat of power to the seat in the court. Uh, We started with that officer, but now we have the justice door open. Uh, The Syrian people has been really creative in finding new ways around the restrictions that been made globally against them through the Russians, the Chinese. We cannot access the ICC. We cannot uh, doing this and this, but the Syrian people managed to use the national courts to prosecute these crimes against the humanity and the war crimes that's going on in Syria. So that happened. The first step has been taken. The rest of the process is easy, not because it's technically easy, but because we already did the first thing. Now, Germany, by doing doing this, encourages so many other countries to take the same step because we have criminals who, who are hiding everywhere you know, in every country. Uh, And hopefully if we can get Germany and other countries to cooperate together to create a court that actually can prosecute even higher crimes in Syria and people with higher ranking in Syria, that would be the hope for the Syrian people. That would be the fastest way to actually get justice to change the regime in Syria. That's interesting. I guess what you're saying about, you know, how... Syrian people don't have access to the International Criminal Court. I wonder what what other kind of barriers are there or have there been really to to seeking justice or do you think that's kind of the the predominant barrier? 
I think the biggest barrier we face is the lack of international will to limit Assad's crimes and to prosecute the war crimes that have been going on in Syria. The international will is lacking a lot because there are big actors like the Russian, the Chinese, the Iranians, who are actually being in every corner trying to limit the possibilities of the Syrian people to achieve their, their goal of freedom and democracy. So we want all these countries that has the potential to prosecute war criminals to do that, right? They talk about democracy, human rights as their main values, but in terms of you know the practice of that, they lack the courage to start this process. And as mentioned, we have survivors everywhere and we have criminals everywhere. We are able to build all these cases that actually these courts can drive. And we have the evidence. That's the crazy thing. We have 55,000 photos of people who've been killed, tortured, and in death in, death in serum, you know, um, until death in serum prisons. And we have the grave digger, the person who's been responsible for the mass graves in Syria. And we have the guy who's been responsible for numbering the dead bodies in Syria. We have all the important actors that are key witnesses that provide key evidence to prosecute. The lack is the will to start these prosecutions. And Germany has taken a very strong, brave step now to prove to the world that we can do that, right? It's the first of its kind. So this is a very brave step. And the Syrian people, the Syrian refugees, the Syrian people all will remember Germany. Outside of the international will, which, as you said, hopefully Germany will be setting kind of an example for this. Do you think this is going to put any pressure on the the Syrian regime? Do you think they're going to be feeling under pressure or or are you sceptical about that? I believe so, yes. People in Syria are listening to this news. People are reading, they're learning of what's going on, including the guard who is responsible for torture today. The guard who is torturing prisoners now is listening, is learning, is hearing, reading this news, and they think twice. They think, well, what can I do now for my future? What can I do to to not be questioned, to not be Uh, in court to not be sentenced, you know, for life in prison. So those people are now in a tough position in terms of trying to figure out a plan for them to take a step that can save their lives. And hopefully some of them will take a step back. They will decide to not be part of the death machine, not be part of the torture machine, to understand that their acts are going to lead them to the really bad. So the regime is leading its supporters to help. You are supporting the regime that is going to be prosecuted, even if that's not today or tomorrow, maybe in 10, 20 years, this regime will be prosecuted. And the regime is the individuals who together committed these crimes. That's really powerful. On the other side, you think things like this also have a really positive impact just in terms of bringing the world's attention back to the situation in Syria, obviously after such a long conflict. How important do you think it is to just keep this story in the public eye? Reading the same news of death and torture and and massacres for 10 years doesn't make the news anymore. People are tired or they don't want to see Syria all the time. The pain has been normalized. That's a problem. We need to always have Syria on TV. We need to always find a good angle to highlight this story because the more we avoid it, the more possibility the regime has to kill its people, 
with the international silence, right? So the regime rely, the regime relies on us becoming silent so they can commit the rest of the crime so they can take over everything and restart the, the era of dictatorship from the beginning, right? So it's important that you and I, we speak, we hear, we publish, we mention, we tell the stories of the people on the ground and the people who suffered and fled the country because as soon as we stop speaking out, the regime will increase the level of brutality because they believe they had the green light. Now it's you and I that gives the green light to the regime to kill its own people. We do so by being silent. Syrian activist Omar al-Shoghri there. Still to come here on The Curator, we hear the story behind a project in the heart of central Seville. We stop off in Bali for a vegan recipe by one of the country's top culinary talents. And we flick through the long-standing literary journal of the San Francisco-based publishing house McSweeney's. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. For this week's edition of Tall Stories, the team took a look at a project in the heart of central Seville, which was completed in 2011. The construction had its fair share of controversy, but the story behind the structure is a great example of the colourful history which reflects in Seville's urban fabric. Our guide is Connor Faulkner. Wandering up and down Sevilla's cobblestone side streets, the buildings lean like dominoes and orange trees line the courtyards in dots of colour. Locals lounge lazily from the terraces as you pass unknowingly or unwillingly through centuries of history. Sevilla has spanned empires and civilizations, been conquered and reconquered, its architecture modelled, remodelled, lost and found. A stroll through Sevilla can take you past the tower that stood since the Moors, and then, across the road, a viaduct since the Romans. Yet as you make your way into the heart of Sevilla, and turn into La Plaza de la Encarnación, you are confronted with an unmistakably modern structure standing over you. It's the biggest wooden structure in the world, locals say, the Metropole Parasol, known colloquially as Las Setas, or the Mushrooms in Spanish. And it dominates the space and skyline above, casting streaks of shade across the square. As the sun sets in the west towards Portugal, Las Setas is tinged golden orange and bulges from Sevilla's streets like a honeycomb. In the 19th century, the plaza housed a market that attracted buyers and sellers from across the city and the other surrounding areas of Andalusia. After partial demolition in 1948 as part of urban renewal plans that never came, the market continued until 1973 when the rest of the crumbling market building was finally demolished. The plaza then remained dormant for 17 years until 1990, when it was decided that underground parking was needed and space for a rooftop market left. When construction on the car park began, however, a discovery was made. 
Ruins from the Roman and Al-Andalus eras were unearthed, hidden beneath central Sevilla for centuries. Sevilla is no stranger to remnants of the Roman Empire, of course. A stone's throw from Las Setas are the columns of La Alameda de Hercules, and its city walls were constructed originally under Caesar, but then remodeled during the Islamic Caliphate of the Iberian Peninsula, a 7th century empire that stretched as far north as France. Faced with such a significant historical discovery, the meeting of two civilizations on one site destined to be a car park, Sevilla Council, unsure what to do, decided in 2004 to redevelop the plaza and opened an international design competition to which German architect Jürgen Meyer entered and won. Meyer's Lasetta design consisted of six parasols in the shape of giant mushrooms, hence the name, and is a staggering 150 metres long, 70 metres wide and 26 metres high. Impressive, certainly, but not without problems. By 2007, engineers had warned that the structure was technically infeasible as designed, and eventually birch was used, imported from Finland, and reinforcements needed. The delay and cost, Lassetas is rumoured to have gone over budget by double, caused controversy among some locals already perturbed by how incongruent the structure was to Sevilla's own historic architecture, and the total cost of Lassetas is believed to be over 100 million euros. Maya took inspiration from the vaults of the Cathedral of Seville and the thickest trees in nearby Plaza de Cristo de Burgos and organised Las Setas in four levels. The underground level houses the Antiquarium, where the Roman and Moorish remains are displayed in a museum. On the street level is a central market, and the roof of level one the surface of the open-air public plaza, shaded by the wooden parasols above and used for public events, although this evening it seems to be the skate park for local teenagers. Levels 2 and 3 are the panoramic terrace spaces offering incredible views where the whitewashed city stretches in church spirals to the river Guadalquivir and mountain ranges in the distance. Las Setas isn't perfect. It was expensive, questioned structurally for a while, and initially unpopular with locals. But with time, it has grown into life as a Saviano landmark, a must-see for all tourists and for locals a constant, unavoidable reminder of time and history and change. Remnants of two civilizations were discovered, together, on top of one another, on land put aside for a car park, then developed by a foreigner, and enjoyed by millions of tourists every year, is perhaps the perfect metaphor for Sevilla's long and varied architectural history, even if it is too modern for some locals. Connor Faulkner in Seville for the latest episode of Door Stories. Next, we are off to Greece to visit an Athenian artisan studio. Antigone Ceramics was founded by the interior architect Antigone Ekodomidou in 2019, who has since turned her hands to the potter's wheel. The studio specialises in bespoke ceramic dinnerware and frequently collaborates with chefs and restaurants. The journalist Sakis Yonadis paid a visit to the studio and sent us this report. A wooden table and a set of plates of all kinds and shapes welcome me as I step inside the cozy workshop of Antigone Economidou in the Kolonaki area of Athens. 
A few years ago, Antigone, an interior designer by profession, took on pottery classes and made two plates in just one afternoon. She hasn't stopped molding new plates and bowls ever since. I have always had a huge love for gastronomy and uh, at the same time, because of my involvement with design, I designed objects. Three years ago, I decided to combine them by designing plates. So I started ceramic lessons to gain the knowledge on how to make them by myself. Six months later, I had my first order and uh, haven't seen stopped. Making objects with clay is a quite time-consuming process on its nature. It must dry, bake, glaze and rebake before it gets to our table. From her dusty hands and the pottery marks on her apron, I'm guessing she's working on something new. As we go underground to her workshop, Antigone tells me that she prefers working with color clay and to create monochromatic plates of earthy colors in different styles and textures. As I watch her smoothing the surface of a bowl before glazing it, I ask Antigone why should we be more present at the dinner table instead of scrolling up and down the screen while eating. We spend hours alone eating in a hurry in front of a screen. Food for me is like a ritual. It is the moment we gather with friends and family and it is like a celebration. We share, apart from food, moments and memories and it is nice to share these moments on a beautifully set table. Everything is uh, senses and at this beautiful moment around food, all five should function. But when we usually uh, pick a plate, it's like a bowl for soups and a flat for almost everything else. Um, what's more in the world of plates? Uh, a lot of things. Small ice cream bowls or breakfast bowl, uh, bigger platters, uh, salad bowls, poke bowl, risotto or pasta plates. There are tons of uh, ceramics to make uh, nice tableware and even more to cover the needs of a gastronomic restaurant. Each pot we do is designed in collaboration with the chef to serve its different dishes. I say goodbye to Antigone and walk about a mile to Okio restaurant to meet with the head chef Vangelis Dagdelenis. It's 7 in the evening and I find Vangelis in the kitchen giving instructions for a beef tartar with Gruyere cheese and potato chips. Okio is a new entry in the Athenian dining scene, a fusion of Mediterranean flavors and Asian dishes served in the ceramic plates of Antigone Economidou. But what makes them so special? First of all, it's a very high quality ceramic dishes. They don't break easily. We can put them on steam, we, we can cook on them, even in the oven. They can handle 240 degrees Celsius, which is great for us. Secondly, is we are the only restaurant in Athens, in the whole world actually, who has the exact dishes. Nobody else has these dishes. I went to Adigoni and I showed her the menu and the references. And I told her my idea is a Mediterranean style menu with some Asian influence. 
in Asia, they, they drink from the, from the bowl, from the dish. And I wanted to, to do something like that here. So I told her I want the bowls to be very, very special. My favorite plate is like a cone and we put broth inside, three pieces of meat. And when you finish the meat, you actually can drink and should drink the broth. What about the colors and the texture of the dish? We have two colors. We have one like um, brown gray and the other one is beige. These colors we decided to match with the whole restaurant as a vibe. Uh, we wanted something warm, something welcoming, something you could find maybe at your house. Many people have like base plates at home. Uh, in terms of texture, the, the texture is kind of harsh. It's very authentic uh, ceramic. We didn't want something boring. So we decided to stay like, to stay authentic. As the ceramic comes out from the oven, let it dry. And this is the product that we love and we like to share with all the people. For Monocle in Athens, I'm Sakis Ioannidis. From bespoke ceramic dinnerware to the food that is served on it now as we turn to the latest instalment of Food Neighbourhoods. For this week's show, one of Bali's top culinary talents shares a favourite vegan recipe. Hi, my name is Dominique Hammond and I am a chef out here in Bali, Indonesia. I am leading the research and development team at Potato Hep. One of the recipes that I'm going to talk to you about today is our vegetable boshi. So we have taken inspiration from Bonito, so using katsuboshi, but we've done our own plant-based version. How we have recreated that is we take some root vegetables such as carrot, daikon and potato and then we marinate them in a 50-50 ratio marinade which is 50% shiokoji and 50% ketchup manis, which is a sweet soy sauce. We marinate the root vegetables at room temperature for one week and then we hot smoke them for six hours. After we hot smoke them, we then dehydrate them at 54 degrees Celsius for two to three days, checking to see if the vegetable is flexible, but also does have a little bit of a hard texture. We found during our research and development that our vegetable boshi is just absolutely incredible, really rich in flavor, really smoky. And I'm actually using that vegetable boshi within quite a few of my dishes on the menu. I grate them for extra depth and substance in flavor. I slice them and put them in broths just to get a really rich, smoky vegetable flavor throughout. Top Chef Dominic Hammond there for this week's edition of Food Neighbourhoods. We have time for one final highlight of the show and it's to last weekend's edition of The Stack that we turn to next. 
McSween is Quarterly's the long-standing literary journal of the San Francisco-based publishing house McSweeney's. Since it launched in 1998, the publication has been famous for its open approach to format and style, changing from issue to issue depending on its content. The latest issue 64 is a deluxe edition that breaks further ground on format by being part print, part audio, and uses these two media to explore creative storytelling. It's not just a magazine with an audiobook version, it's interactive. You might have to call a number to hear some voicemails or find out the end of a written story by listening to two richly produced alternate endings. To pull this off, the McSweeney's team worked with the audio production company Radiotopia, who are behind some of the biggest podcasts in America. And the whole thing took a couple of years to pull together. To find out more about this special deluxe edition of McSweeney's Quarterly, Monocle's Holly Fisher spoke to the editor, Claire Boyle. So this is an issue of the McSweeney's Quarterly, which is typically a literary journal that just comes front cover, back cover stories in the middle. Um, But for this issue, our audio issue, it comes in a linen-bound box with a bunch of objects inside booklets, books, keychains, scrolls. And each different object is its own discrete story. And each story has an audio component to it. So you scroll the illustrations as you listen to a story that goes along with it, or you listen to the first part of a story in audio and then you read the rest of it on the page. Um, So each different object has its totally own relationship between between audio and print. And you worked with um, Julie Shapiro from Radiotopia on this, who was, I guess she was your audio expert while you sort of dealt with the print side of things. What exchanges were you having about sort of the opportunities of, of your mediums and how they could enhance each other? Yeah, so we worked, um, we partnered with Radiotopia on this, so Julie Shapiro and Audrey uh, Mardovich, and then we also worked with senior producer Andrew Leland. So there were there were a good number of brilliant audio brains on here. Um, and that was the most exciting thing about working on this is that we we all brought our own kind of perspectives to our own mediums, but then kind of cross cross pollinated. And the expected benefits of audio is that you can just you can deliver emotion so immediately with tone of voice, with intonation with this kind of thing. And then with with the printed page, then you can bring kind of a richness of detail and images. And so they kind of, they they all came together to create like a, a, a very multi-dimensional experience in that way. Now, this is a multimedia project. And I think that term really conjures up images of, you know, like digital content, social media, that kind of cross-platform online kind of thing. But this is such an analog project which you maybe wouldn't expect from something that's based 50% in audio. But I guess you're first and foremost a print publication. So was keeping that analogue element of it really important to you? Super important. Yeah, we feel um, one of our core values at the quarterly is is the importance of the, tac- the tactileness of, of a publication, of, of like a magazine and picking up and feeling it and smelling it. And this is a, such a tactile experience. So there's like you're constantly turning pages, you're constantly picking up different objects, you're scrolling, you're, you're dialing on your phone. Um, but something really interesting about this experience is that at a certain point, I started to wonder, like, once you add the visual and the audio and the written, like, at what point are you adding 
um, mediums together so much that it just becomes like television or, you know, movies. Like what, what separates this from like a more digital experience in that it is bringing all of these different mediums together. But I think what, what we discovered as we were working on it is, is the, the big difference between this and like sitting down and watching a television show is that you are the, the final key as the reader to put everything together. So you're not sitting back and kind of like being enveloped by this multi-sensory experience. You're kind of creating it. You're the key to like adding the audio to the text, to the physical objects. Um, so you're kind of like in the center of it in that way. Yeah, that's so true. And I guess the, the sort of two key mediums that you're using are such intimate ones as well um, that that's why they would work so well together. I also wondered in terms of, I mean, like writing for the page and writing for audio are such different skills. And I wondered how this project made you think about language. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think writing for the ear feels like it wants to be springier. It wants to be more conversational. And writing for the pages so you can bring in so many more flourishes and descriptive language and unexpected vocabulary and in that way, it was it was interesting to a play with writing for the the best version of writing for the ear and the best version of writing for the page, but also kind of like flipping it and saying like, what does that kind of springy conversational text look like on the page, and what does the like really flourished, you know, ornate writing sound like out loud? Um, so we played with kind of like flipping those expectations as well, which was really fun. And perhaps you could just give us a couple of examples of the stories that you commissioned and how they work in their print and their audio components. Yeah, so there's a piece called Clear Voice by Kate Sopper, who is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated composer. Thank you for your purchase of Clear Voice for individual or business use. And this is a super cool piece. So it it takes the form, it's like a long, thin, shiny booklet. And it it takes the form of like when you get a new iPhone and you have that uh, software upload booklet that comes with it that kind of like shows you how to upload your iPhone. So it's that. It takes the form of that, but instead of uploading or or installing an iPhone, you're installing a uh, software into your brain that allows you to uh, send messages through your thoughts. So it's this really wacky science fiction-y piece. So as you're reading along in the booklet, as the software upload is developing, you're also listening to the speech at the same time. Step one, initialization. Hi, I'm Dr. Simon. I'll be guiding you through the upload process. It's important that you keep reading along as you listen to the sound of my voice. There are crucial moments in the story where the text and the audio are suddenly doing different things. So you're hearing different words out loud than you're reading on the page. And it's in those moments that this darker meaning emerges from, from behind the piece. And so you're kind of like detectiving your way through what is really going on here as you're installing the software into your brain. She plays with the relationship between audio um, and print in this really exciting way because there's a simultaneity there. Um, in that you're hearing and you're reading the same thing and they're they're paired exactly together, but then there are these crucial moments where they just slip and something comes out from under that. So that was a really beautiful piece. Let's try a simple exercise in virtual interaction. 
When you hear the tone, I'd like you to tell me your name. But don't say it out loud. Just think it. Did you think it? And just finally, I wondered how working on this changed your approach to storytelling or or taught you something new about storytelling. I mean, you've been telling stories for years throughout your career, but it's always nice to get a project that makes you think about things a bit differently. I think the thing that it has made us think a lot about is the importance of letting a story take the form that it it's best to exist in, to kind of like express itself to its fullest and let it lead. Um, so that might mean a print only story. That might mean an audio piece. That might mean a multi, you know, medium piece. But I think the process of commissioning each piece and watching it take the form that it ought to take with like no boundaries on what that means and, and the most important thing there is that it's allowed to take. It's not forced into any one form. It's allowed to kind of sprawl out into the unknown. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening. <laughs>